Thank you, Eugene. Thank you, Sean, for leading us this morning. Good morning, Arcadia. My name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, if you have your Bibles or your apps, uh, please get them out and get them open. We are going to have a lot of scripture this morning, which is a good thing. But I am going to start by breaking protocol. Um, I'm sorry for that, but uh, I feel it must be done. It's totally unspiritual, and I recognize that, but it still must be done. Uh, apparently, there's a big game this afternoon, right? So, um, it, I, you're not allowed to use those two uh, words, apparently. They've been trademarked or whatever. You can't use them, put them anywhere, anywhere. So, I'm really scared. So, there's a big football game later on today. So, just by, uh, by very polite clap, now this is church, so ver- by very polite clap, that means... Okay, this hand is like this, this hand just like this, and you just move this hand, that's it, just like this, okay? So by very polite clap, I want to know which of you are excited about the Baltimore Ravens. Just do this, come here. Okay. Now, by polite, which of you are excited about the San Francisco 49ers? Just, yeah. Now, which of you are excited about the food that you're going to get this at? Yeah, there you go. It's why I love it here at Redemption Arcadia, yes. We are in our second week of a locally contextualized series on mission and vision and purpose of the church. And the reason I say locally contextualized, if you're new to uh, Redemption, Redemption is uh, Redemption Arizona is one church but six different congregations. And we are the Arcadia manifestation uh, of Redemption Church. And so for the first time in the history of Redemption, we are... Uh, we are doing a series that is locally contextualized. Usually we do all the same series. Uh, we're, we're still doing the same series. It's called Building a Better Church, but we're doing it contextualized specifically for our local communities. And so uh, just so that you know, uh, the Big R Redemption, Redemption Arizona, uh, their vision and purpose is that they are, we, I should say we, are gospel-centered and outward-focused. So we value the gospel, we value the word of God, but not necessarily just for us, we are also outward focused. So we understand that it's not just that we are brought to Christ, that God reveals Christ to us, but also that we are then sent out to make Christ known to others. Uh, also, we like to say around Big R Redemption that all of life is all for Christ. Uh, in other words, there is no such thing as segmenting a part of your life away from Christ. Once Christ is in you and you are in Christ, it just gets into every part of your life. Now, people try to segment it. Uh, they try to, to kind of keep some parts of their life away from Jesus or away from Christianity or whatever, but that's not what ultimately happens. All of life is all for Christ. And so, as a friend of mine likes to say, we value integration over segmentation. In fact, segmentation would not even be biblical. And then, drilling down for Arcadia locally, our mission, our vision, our purpose has, has been boiled down to this, knowing Jesus and loving our community. Knowing Jesus and loving our community. And here's part of the theology that's behind that. And some of it comes from John 17, some of it comes from 1 Peter, obviously all of it comes from uh, Scripture. But Jesus says that eternal life is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's John 17, 3. And so to know Jesus would be to engage with him. 
and you engage with him through uh, the gathering of the church. You know, Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering of the community. So we engage through church. We engage through redemption communities. So uh, other people who are also uh, Christians and sometimes non-Christians in these redemption communities who are exploring faith. But you engage Christ through that. You engage Christ through prayer, which is foundational. And we'll talk about that in, in week four of this series. And then we also engage Christ through Scripture, through the Word of God, through the Bible, which we're going to talk mostly about today. But those are the various ways that we believe that we need to be able to engage Jesus so that we can know Him. So knowing Him is very important. But that is not necessarily the end game. While it's important, it's only half of the story. Jesus additionally mandates that we engage our community locally and globally, for He has sent us. He, he says also in John chapter 17, I do not ask, he's praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them, meaning the disciples, meaning the church, meaning those who believe in Jesus, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You protect and guard us from Satan. And then he says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So the church's mandate is that we are also sent into the world. So our identity is thoroughly and completely in Christ to not only know him, but also to be sent to make him known. So we want to know Jesus, but we're also sent into our community to love the community and to, uh, uh, to bring the message of the gospel and the excellencies of Jesus to those who are still in darkness because he has brought us out of that darkness into his marvelous light, as Peter would say in 1 Peter. So last week we started the, the series with a brunch and with a message on the idea that, uh, that unity is important, that the church is, uh, is made up of many members, diverse members, different members, but that we are one body and that we are unified in and by and through Christ. And, and then next week we're going to talk about generosity, and the idea is that uh, generosity really starts with God's gener generosity toward us. And we're going to be talking about generosity of spirit and the fact that there are many currencies of generosity. So it's, we're not going to talk just about money. We will talk about money. But in fact, generosity is a spirit that should invade and infect all of our lives. And then the fourth week, as I mentioned, prayer. Uh, the fifth week, we'll talk about the importance of confession, forgiveness, and thankfulness because those things seem to go together. And then uh, the sixth week, we'll talk about being called and sent. This week, we're going to talk about the importance of proclamation, the first mandate of the church. And, and I wasn't going to do this, but I was compelled by the Spirit earlier this morning to do this. I'm going I'm to back up and start in Ephesians chapter 3. We, we will then get to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which is the text that Eugene read. And if you want to follow along uh, on this Ephesians thing, uh, just for a couple of minutes in the beginning, Ephesians would be to the right of 1 Corinthians, a couple more books, or in your app, it's just somewhere else. Um, just put in Ephesians and you'll find it. But Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, Paul writes this. Of this gospel, the good news, that, that word gospel literally means good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. You're going to see this all over that paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we're going to unpack today. That the power of everything that we do as individual Christians and as the church is not our power, but it is the power of and by God through his son, Jesus Christ. 
and through the Holy Spirit working through us. And Paul is just, uh, he just reiterates this over and over and over and over again. That is, that is nothing that he has done. It's nothing that I have done. It's nothing that you have done. But it is totally the power of God in us that is doing any of this. So he's a minister by the power of God's grace. Uh, and he goes on to say, to me, though I am the very least of the saints. So there he is. He's saying, I'm nothing special. And he says that also in 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, I'm the least of the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of God and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things. In this particular case, Paul is talking about the mystery of God being that now the Gentiles are included in this salvation thing, which would be shocking to the Jewish community. Nevertheless, Paul was sent to be the apostle to the Gentiles, that, that this salvation includes circumcised and uncircumcised. It doesn't matter who you are, if you're a barbarian, a Greek, a Roman, a Jew, if you're a woman, a, 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 a male, if you're, if you're a slave or a free, it doesn't matter. So he's saying that this, this mystery has been opened up to everybody. Verse 10 so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So he's saying it, th this is the church's responsibility to make this message known. That's the point. The first mandate of the church. Okay, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in, God, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the, the eternal purpose of all of this was realized in Jesus Christ. That's why... Uh, Jesus was able to say on the cross, it is finished. E everything that has purpose, it's done right here. Your salvation is complete here. Your life is complete here. Everything is, is complete here. And then verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Because we're now following Christ, if you are a, a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, you now with confidence and boldness can approach this throne of grace and, and you can bring everything that you got to God because he he is merciful and loving and kind and forgiving and he wants you to be with him and so this sets the stage for this idea of proclamation and and it being very important to the purpose of the church it's it's the second character important characteristic of great churches that we're going to talk about in this series Churches with a vision and a purpose proclaim the gospel and teach the word of God. We teach the Bible here every Sunday and Wednesday nights and in our redemption communities. And churches with a vision and purpose acknowledge and proclaim the power of the gospel. We recognize that the power is in the gospel and not in us. And then finally, churches with a vision and purpose embrace the word of God as the authority for all of life and wisdom. That, that this word of God informs us in everything that we do, and that's why we need to be engaged with it, because we engage with the Word of God, we are going to engage with Jesus and know who He is. And so, here's what we're going to do, a little preview of sorts. We're going we're to first work our way through that little paragraph at the beginning of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you'll turn there now, we're going to go there. And then from there, we're going to pull out and discuss three major points of application about proclamation, and here they are. First of all, proclamation for the gospel and we find that in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 2. And we're going to shift over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when we do that. Second of all, proclamation for discipleship, education, and equipping. We find that in verses 4 and 5 of, of 1 Corinthians 2. And we're going to move into 2 Timothy for a little while to do that. And then finally, proclamation 
requires perseverance and patience, and we're going to look at a paragraph in Romans 12 uh, for that, and you kind of get that out of uh, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's go just a little bit deeper on this paragraph that Eugene just read for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In verse 1, Paul says that he did not come to the Corinthians proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Uh, the, the word wisdom there assumes that he means human wisdom. So lofty speech literally could be translated as clever rhetoric or and, and then it, and he didn't come with clever rhetoric or human wisdom. So what's the point that Paul's trying to get across here? Well, there is a sense in which if somebody is really good at rhetoric, if they're good at wordsmithing, if they're good at argumentation, if they're good at persuasion, that they can convince anyone of anything with the correct rhetorical approach. You and I both know people who have the ability to do that. No matter what, you get into a discussion with them and you think that you are firmly planted in your convictions and your perspective and by the time you're done with that person, you are really turned inside out because they understand rhetoric, okay? Well, Paul is saying, that's not what has, is happening here. That's not how I came to you. He says, the power of the gospel is not in me or any orator, but rather it is in God and his word. And even today, you and I, we talk about this all the time. We talk about how much we, we love Matt Chandler or John Piper or, or, or whoever it is that we follow. We love that. We get enamored with guys who can really spin the words and wow us with, with eloquence. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. God uses those gifts. But when it comes to the gospel, that is not where the real power resides. The real power resides with God, with the resurrected Christ. Colin Cruz, who is a New Testament scholar, and he wrote a commentary on uh, 1 Corinthians. He writes this. First century Greek orators followed certain well-established conventions when they entered a city, as Paul did Corinth. And they were expected to give flowery speeches in praise of the city and in praise of their own personal achievements. They did this in order to establish their reputation and reap financial rewards as gifted orators. Paul makes it clear in verses 1 and 2, however, that he rejected these conventions. He's the only one who came to town that did not use that methodology of, of clever wordsmithing and human wisdom. And Paul says in verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That, that, there's a little Greek phraseology in there. I decided to know nothing. It literally means that Jesus and him crucified is the only thing that Paul cared about knowing, discovering, studying, and presenting to anybody else. If there was a Super Bowl going on in Paul's day, he wouldn't have talked about it. He would have talked about Jesus Christ and him crucified and him raised from the dead. That was his thing. If ever there was somebody with a one-track mind, it was Paul. And his one track was Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that's all he was about. And then he even goes so far as to say in verse 3, that, uh, that it, and he's saying, listen, it wasn't me, it wasn't my power, but rather it was in weakness, fear, and trembling that he came to the Corinthians with this message of the gospel. Now, why does he even go that far as to say, I'm just nothing? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, the message that Paul has, which is the gospel. Jesus Christ lived, was crucified, was buried, and was resurrected so that you and I could be reconciled to God. This message is so powerful that Paul, no one but Paul in particular, can't possibly be powerful enough or smart enough 
to be able to communicate it on his own. And because of that, he feels a heavy responsibility and burden to handle this message with care and respect. And I will tell you that as someone who does this on Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning practically, I get that. I understand that. I, I am dwarfed by the power and the majesty and, and, and the, the simplicity and the, and, and the greatness and the mystery of the gospel message. And there are times when I'm even, I'm just confounded by why I was even, I'm even given the privilege to be able to do this. And I love doing it. It's, it's my passion. But I still back away and I say, I, I can't believe, I'm handling something very important. Let me put it this way. Probably if, if you're somebody who's been in the military, you might be able to answer this. Has anybody here ever handled explosives? I'm not talking, now, okay, no black cat firecrackers. I'm talking about explosives. Anybody handled those? Okay. You have those explosives in your hands, and you begin to think about the power that those explosives contain. And if you make a mistake, there is no wiggle room, right? Absolutely no wiggle room. And as a result, you treat these explosives with care and respect. Well, well that's kind of what's what's going on here that's what paul is communicating here i treat this message with care and respect because the power is in the message not in me but also secondly if we go back to discuss this idea of the decorum of rhetoric in first century greek cities when these philosophers and and these great speakers would come in part of that decorum part of the fancy and clever communication was something that they called presence presence Great rhetoricians of that day not only sounded good, but they looked good too. They had presence, they had an entourage, they had what people might call gravitas, and they, they made sure that they were carefully manicured and quaffed and that they looked right. Not so, Paul. As you read the history books and you see the scholars piece together who Paul was and what he looked like, Physically, Paul was, and I'm sorry, there is just no gentle way of putting this. Physically, the Apostle Paul was a mess. He was, uh, from what the historians and scholars say, he was short and kind of hunched over. He had a, a, a bent nose. He had a, a kind of a speech impediment, and he probably had some sort of a condition of his eye that caused it to ooze stuff, okay? So in other words, if he's going to preach for three hours, and by the way, in the first century, they used to preach for three hours. Aren't you happy you live in the 21st century? Anyway, if he's going to stand there and preach to you for three hours, Paul once preached so long that a guy fell asleep, fell out of the window, and died, okay? I haven't had that happen to me yet, but anyway, if you're going to stand there and look, I mean, you've got to look at this guy, okay? Yet he was able to keep people's attention. That's the power of the gospel, he was the antithesis of what people expected when somebody came into town with one of these messages. He was, he was, he was certainly not Matthew McConaughey. He was not anywhere near anything like that. And here's the point. It's like God Paul, used Paul specifically in order to display the power of God rather than the cleverness and wisdom of man. As people looked around at the fruit of his ministry, that there is no way that people could look at and go, well, look at Paul. I mean, the guy is a stud, he's good-looking, he's eloquent. They couldn't do that. They had to look at him and go, it must be God. There's no other possible explanation for this. It must be God. And that's why this is so important. That's how God was using Paul. 
And Paul drives this point home in verse 4 by writing, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, that would be the Holy Spirit, and of power, that would be the power of God. And then he wraps it up in verse 5, reiterating, Your faith does not rest in, in other words, your faith is not a a result of, it is not continued by, it is not sanctified by the wisdom of man, but rather by the power of God. And that Greek word that is translated power throughout this paragraph is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. So Paul really is handling something with with explosive power. That's the point here. Our, our faith comes from the power of God and his word, and the proclamation of the gospel uh, is done not through fancy preaching and superior an- intellect. Understand, human motivation and inspiration is not enough to sustain the gospel. It just isn't. There is nothing that has been able to sustain 2,000 years of oppression and persecution like the gospel has. That must be God. That must be the power of God. And we're reminded in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He doesn't say faith comes by hearing and hearing by smart people listening to clever preaching. It's the word of God. It is the power of God. And, and I know, I just know, because uh, I, I just for years, I've run into this in a message like this. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, man, this is like Christianity 101. Come on, let's get past this. Well, yes, it is like Christianity. This is basic stuff. I get that. But I don't apologize for that. And here's why. There are young Christians in this room, just like I was a young Christian at one time, new in my faith. And they don't know this. They don't know the basics yet. They don't understand how important this was. And when I was a young Christian... The age of 27, this was one of the first messages I ever heard, and it was foundational, and it got me off on the right track, understanding the importance of the proclamation of the gospel and the teaching of the word of God. And the reason is because a church is not a church, and you and I are not believers if we don't embrace and advance the proclamation of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was crucified and rose from the dead, and teach the word of God as one of the essential reasons and purposes for the existence of the church. And while you may know that and appreciate that already, there are still many who don't know it and and need that instruction and they need to hear it, just like I did 27 years ago. So now, having said that, let me drill down just a little bit deeper with these three points that we can extract from this paragraph that we just went through. And the first one is proclamation for the gospel. If you just go to the right a little bit in 1 Corinthians, go over to... uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Take us through a few verses there. Paul now kind of circles back and wants to talk about the gospel and, 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 and very specifically the resurrection as of first importance to the gospel. Verse, uh, chapter 15, starting with verse 1, Paul writes... Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Let me just stop there. Notice that Paul says, I delivered this to you as of first importance. 
What Paul is saying is that this is essential, this is non-negotiable. What I'm about to talk about, Paul says, is if you get rid of this, you don't have anything. You don't have a a faith, you don't have uh, the gospel, you don't have Christianity. This is of first importance. This is not a secondary thing that most churches get in a fight over that isn't really even that, that worth getting in a fight. It's important, but it's not worth getting in a fight over. This is something he's saying that is worth getting into a fight over. This is of first importance. It's a priority. Place it at the top of the list. This is of first importance, which I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So, the great Larry Wright used to call these six verses the gospel in a nutshell. And let me take this back now, again, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that paragraph that we just reviewed. I gave you half of the story as to why Paul was so excited about making sure that people understood that the power was in the message of the gospel and not in him. That's just half the story. Here's the other half of the story. When those fancy orators would come into town, like a a city like Corinth or Athens or whatever, and they would bring their entourage and they would look good and they would have all this rhetoric going on, what was also happening is that usually the message that they brought in was very, it was erudite, it was academic, it was scholarly, it was up here, it was abstract, it was difficult to understand, but they understood it. And most often they would be talking beyond or over many of the people who would go and listen to them speak, even though they were eloquent orators. The gospel is different though. The gospel is simple. It's easy to understand. Here it is. You and I are sinners. We're separated from God by that sin. God remedies the situation by sending his son to live a perfect life, die as the perfect sacrifice for forgiveness of our sins, be buried and then raised from the dead so that you and I would have eternal life and victory over Satan's sin and death. That's the gospel. Some of you are told in business that you need to have your 30-second elevator talk. Well, there's your 30-second elevator talk of the gospel, okay? It's that simple. Anybody can understand this. It's not erudite. It's not beyond anybody. It's not too difficult. And by the way, you just heard the gospel, and if you're somebody who hasn't crossed that line of faith yet, I would encourage you, this might be the time that God is opening your eyes to cross that line. It's exactly what happened to me 27 years ago when it was presented to me, and and, and it was so simple. It was just like, yeah, I am a sinner. I admit that, and I'm messed up. I'm lost if I don't get reconciled to God. And look, he provided that for me through Jesus Christ. And so it is a simple message, but here's what's key about this. It's not simplistic. We need to understand there's a difference. It's not simplistic in that it's not profound. It is deeply profound, but it is simple enough for anybody to understand. And so that is very, very important. Now, a couple more verses. Look at verses 12 through 14. Now he starts to drill down on the importance of the resurrection. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Then jump down to verse 17 where he kind of wraps up. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Literally, what Paul is saying there is that if, if we believe this and if it's not true, we're fools. Very strong language for back then. So, so why was it that Paul was writing these verses specifically about the importance of the resurrection? Well, the entire book of 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing some questions that the Christians at Corinth had for Paul about faith, about church, about theology, and about how to live in community. But it's also a letter where Paul firmly addresses some of the challenging things that were happening in Corinth, some of the things that were going wrong in the church at Corinth. And one of those challenges was, just like today, people were questioning the resurrection. And here's what's amazing about that. We're 2,000 years removed from the resurrection. They were less than 25 years removed from the resurrection and still even have had eyewitnesses who were alive who saw the resurrection, who were able to see, say, yes, I saw him dead, I saw him buried, and then I saw him alive. They had, they had eyewitnesses that they could talk directly to, and yet there was still this attitude starting to infiltrate Corinth, even in the church, that was questioning resurrection. Did it really happen? Is it real? Are we sure it wasn't the figment of some people's imagination? Are we sure that people didn't just make this up? Maybe it's really just a metaphor for, for new life and flowers and things like that. Or they'd ask the question, so, so what if the resurrection didn't take place? Is it really that important? I mean, is it really that necessary? Or there might even have been people there going something like this. Hey, hey it's 55 AD, man. We're an enlightened, intelligent culture. Do we really believe in resurrection, man? You know? <sighs> whatever okay so just kidding all of that was already going on the same stuff that we engage in today and Paul takes on this issue head-on now you personally may or may not have a differing understanding and differing interpretations of some of the more nuanced and secondary points of the Bible and, and theology and, and that's okay I'm not here to debate that we have lots of people who like to debate those secondary points and, and that's fun and it's interesting because there is no church or denomination that has the market absolutely cornered on what is flawlessly perfect theology and interpretation on every jit and tottle that we find in the Bible. That's why we have different churches and we have different denominations. And I really like Redemption Church. And, and Redemption Church's doctrinal stances and mine are, are just meld together perfectly. It's one of the reasons uh, that I was called here and I like that. But you also need to know that I happen to love my Presbyterian ba um, Baptist and Lutheran brothers and sisters in Christ. I will tell you, we had, not only did we have a Lutheran in the first service, but we had a Lutheran who was from Minnesota. I even love him, okay? So you got kind of two things going on there, all right. But there are a few items that are non-negotiable. There are. And resurrection is one of them. That's why Paul says in verse 3, this is of first importance. Resurrection is essential it's indispensable. It's non-negotiable. Paul dies on the hill of resurrection, and so do I. So should you. Consider, if there is no resurrection, then we have no victory over sin. We have no victory over death. We have no victory over Satan and evil. We have no life. We have no hope. What we do have is total foolishness. That's what Paul says. He says, if we believe this and it's not true and the resurrection didn't happen, then we are to be pitied more than anybody else on the face of this earth. We are fools. 
Now, I've learned over the years. I'm, I just tell you, I mean, when I was younger, I, I died on every hill. I went to the mat for everything. And I've learned over the year to, to carefully consider what hills I will die on for a number of, of I think, very good reasons. But, but I used to die on every, it didn't matter. You can, and you can ask my wife, because she's known me a long time. Didn't matter what the context was. Marketplace, church world, theology, sports, whatever, whatever it was. I die on considerably fewer hills today than I used to. And I will also say there's great freedom in being willing to carefully consider when to go to the mat and when to let something go. It is the ultimate in trusting God and being happy that you don't have that responsibility anymore. I don't have the responsibility anymore of being right every time. I don't have the responsibility anymore of out-debating somebody. I don't have the responsibility anymore of, of winning every single battle. But you had to know that was coming. I will die on the hill of resurrection every single time. Without it, there is no point of being a Christian. Without the resurrection, there's no Christianity. We proclaim the resurrection or we proclaim nothing. Without resurrection, there is, there is no hope. Unless you've decided to go ahead and put your hope in the world, which frankly I did for 27 years and it sucked. The comparison doesn't even, it's not even worth making the comparison, I will tell you. Is Christianity hard and challenging? Yes, but so is life. And I will tell you, mine has been infinitely better since, since coming to know Christ, since he opened my ears. Listen, Jesus Christ is both the subject and the sum of the gospel. His life shows us the character of God. His death pays for our sin and, and shows us God's mercy and generosity and the justice of God. His resurrection gives us life, hope, and a heavenly inheritance that that shows us the radical love of God, and we proclaim it. We proclaim it or we die. So the first point is proclamation for the gospel. Second is proclamation for discipleship, for education, and for equipping. And if you want to, you can go over to 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3. I'm, it's just a couple verses. I'm going to read them. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's to your right from 1 Corinthians. Past 1 Timothy. And it's all the way at the end of 2 Timothy 3, the last two verses. And, and I will just say that, that if you're, again, if you're new to the faith, if you're new to this Christian walk, uh, these two little verses here, verses 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3, are foundational verses. These should be verses that you should have marked up and, and, and you should have your Bible page folded over here. And it's something that's very important. It's, this is a, again, these were foundational for me early in my walk with Christ. Here's what Paul says, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, the way I want to unpack this passage is, is uh, there are six words here that I, wanted, that I want to do a little bit of a word study on, but they're, they're critical. This is how this passage became foundational for me. First of all, uh, breathed out by God. The Greek word is theonoesos, okay? Breathed out by God. Literally, it was inspired and directed by God. Uh, there were human authors who wrote the Bible, but it was God inspiring them to write what they wrote, and there were no mistakes made. Uh, a lot of people will come to the Bible, come to Scripture, and they will say, this book contains the Word of God. 
Well, that's not entirely true. If it just contains the word of God, then it's our job to go and find which parts are the word of God. And let me tell you something. I don't trust you, and you shouldn't trust me to be the arbiters of what is and is not the word of God in here. This doesn't just contain the word of God. It is the word of God. Every jot and tittle. Like I said, it is inspired by God, directed by God, breathed out by God. And Paul says it is profitable. The, the, the Greek word is ophilimos, and, and I love this, the deeper definition of this, I love it, means it is better than any alternative, okay? So you lay the word of God against any worldview, any philosophy, any direction, any methodology, and the word of God ev wins every single time. Not because it happens to be a little bit better, but because it's really the only one that is completely filled with truth. It is better than any alternative. You do a cost-benefit analysis, you know, you... You know, I, when, my, when I was like 10, my parents taught me this whole thing about when I'm trying to make a decision, get a piece of paper, split it down the middle, cost, benefit, all that stuff. You do that with the word of God, the benefit side is going to be much higher than the cost side. It wins every time. And it's funny because, you know, people are always, I, I just talked to so many people, they're always looking for the right way and the secret path and, and the, the way to live advantageously and, and what is real truth. And I want to find that. I want to find, well, here it is right here right here. And that's not me saying that. That's the word of God itself saying, proclaiming it. This is where you can find that. And I will tell you, I've never been a big guy for the idea that because Christianity is pragmatic and utilitarian, in other words, because Christianity works, that's why we should believe it and embrace it. I've never been that guy. I, I think that we should believe and embrace Christianity because it's God and it's the power of the gospel. That's why. But that does not change the fact that in fact, this is the advantageous way to live. That if you live under the teaching of the word of God, if you're discipled by the word of God, you are going to have certain advantages in life. The word of God is actually profitable to us. So what's it profitable for? Paul tells us four things. Number one, it's profitable for teaching. The word is didascalia. And it literally means teaching that applies to a lifestyle of righteousness. In other words, it is practical. It's practical for you. You can go to it for counsel. It helps us to know what to do. We live, in, again, in a, in a culture that, that tends to want to show its humility by saying, you know, I'm just going through life searching for answers, and I don't have the answers, and I don't know truth, and just kind of, look. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And that's supposed to be uh, like, uh, like a, a tribute to to uh, your virtues is that you don't know. Well, I will tell you, we can know and we do know. And that's, again, that's not me saying that. That's just the word of God. I'm giving you the message of what the word of God is. There's a guy that <clears throat> for a number of years, we've been hiking together every Friday morning and he wasn't a Christian. And we, we were very good friends, hiking, hiking, hiking for a long time. We were on a hike Friday morning, uh, one Friday morning, last May, and he says, okay, I got, I got something to tell you, Frank. He says, I've crossed the line of faith. I've, I've given my life to Jesus, and, and uh, I'm a Christian now. And so <laughs> our hikes became less evangelical and now more discipling and more mentoring and more, um, uh, more sanctifying, things like that. And, and he also happens to run a small business. And, and a couple of Friday mornings ago, he was we were hiking, and he was unpacking for me 
a long and large business problem that he had been going through for about three weeks. And I used to run a business too, I, so I know, I know what these problems are like and what he was going through. And he took me through it from the beginning to the end, and, and, and everything turned out well. Now, being a Christian doesn't mean that everything is always going to turn out circumstantially well in your eyes, but in this case, everything turned out really well. And at the end of this long story, I mean, it took him about an hour to unpack this story. At the end of it, he said, you know, this was really interesting. He said, this is the first time I've ever encountered a problem in business where I applied the scripture every step of the way. Even if it didn't feel right, I did what scripture told me to do. And in the end, it turned out really well. And then he said, you know what? I'm beginning to think the Bible really does have answers for life. It's true. It really does. It's wonderful for teaching. But the Bible is also wonderful, wonderful for reproof. The word reproof literally means proof that you have not lived up to the measure. It's proof, it's evidence that you have not lived up to the measure. So what's the measure that we're talking about? It's the measure of God's purpose for you. If you're wondering about what God's purpose is for you, you can, you can look at Scripture and it will help you with that. And if you're on the wrong road, reproof literally means it'll stop you. If you're, if you're heading in the wrong direction, on the wrong path, it'll stop you where you are. But it's also good for correction. That's the third thing. Not only will it stop you, but it will also correct you. The word correction means to set straight again, to reform. Literally, it means to reconstruct after deconstruction. So not only does the word of God stop you from heading down the wrong path, but it picks you up and puts you on the right path and says, now go. And you head down the right path, and then finally it's good for training, paedia. Literally, training is discipline or to be discipled and mentored. It's a relationship that produces results. If you're, if you're being discipled, you're in a relationship that is going to produce results. Now, I have a friend who paraphrases verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3 this way. I like it. It's very simple, but it's easy to remember. The Word of God tells us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. Scripture tells us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. And then in verse 17, Paul says, So that, all of this happens so that, those who are trained, mentored, and discipled are completely and properly prepared and equipped to live according to the purpose that God has for us. Listen, many people try to divorce living as a Christian from the scriptures. I, I don't understand why they do that, but many people try to do that. But this passage is clear. You can't divorce the two. You integrate your life with the scriptures. We need to be willingly uh, discipled and shepherded by the tutelage of the Bible. So, I would encourage you, if you're not already, get into Bible studies. Make it happen. Find someone who knows the Bible better than you. Buy them a cup of coffee every week and go through Scripture for an hour. Start engaging with people. Come to Wednesday nights, these classes on Wednesday nights. Get into a redemption community. See Eugene Scott and find a redemption community. And if, and if you're one of those people who's been praying that someone would come into your life and walk alongside of you and help you with Scripture and you've been praying that prayer for a long time, it might possibly be time for you to do what Mark Driscoll suggests that we occasionally do, and that is to answer your own prayer. Go out and find somebody. Don't wait for them to come. Go out and find somebody. Engage with people. So proclamation for the gospel, proclamation for discipleship, education and equipping, and finally, proclamation requires perseverance and patience. So look at Romans. Go back now to the left. Look at Romans. 
chapter 12. We're going to be starting the book of Romans on Easter Sunday. And we're going to spend just a little bit of time in Romans. We're going to go through it verse by verse. And if you know, there's, I don't know, a couple of million verses. So, But Romans 12, it's a wonderful paragraph. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13 uh, people say that, that if you look at this chapter, it is the marks of a Christian. It is somebody who's fully engaged with Christ that you're going to see this kind of fruit manifested in their life. And so Paul writes, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, and then Josh Prather's favorite verse, uh, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And then the key verse that we're going to look at, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So, verse 12 is where I really want to drill down for our last couple of minutes. If you read scripture, you are going to find that the Christian life should be filled with hope and prayer. Hope and prayer, hope and prayer. And because of the nature of humanity and the nature of the world, we're going to also experience tribulation in the midst of engaging hope and prayer. That word, the biblical word tribulation is thipsis, and it literally means stress, challenge, tension, and trouble. So we have that in life, and we have it especially as Christians. And every one of these words that Paul uses to explain our relationship with hope, tribulation, and prayer, so in other words, rejoice, patient, and constant, every one of them calls for patience and perseverance. And one of the big reasons we're specifically called to patience and perseverance is because when you proclaim the gospel and teach the word of God, there is going to be opposition. There's also going to be slow progress. When you proclaim the word of God and you proclaim the gospel, there will be a need for steady plodding. And I know that people don't like that terminology, steady plodding. I'm not a steady plotter, I'm a racehorse. We need you to be in this as a steady plotter. The church needs to be steady plotters. I need to be a steady plotter. Long obedience in the same direction. Steadfast determination. And much of that is powered by hope and prayer. Hope and prayer. So as we proclaim, as we're sent into the world by Jesus, going on mission, being what the bride of Christ is supposed to be, we rejoice in hope. The hope is the guarantee of the resurrection in our lives because of the finished work of Jesus. See, see Christian hope is different than worldly hope. Worldly hope is, is the kind of thing where we say, well, I hope something happens or I hope something doesn't happen, but there's no guarantee and you really don't know whether or not it will happen. Some of you right now, I hope the Ravens win today. Some of you, I hope, I hope San Francisco wins today, but there's, there's no guarantee. I hope the weather will be nice tomorrow. I hope the person I ask out will go out with me. I hope the Cardinals can find a quarterback. No guarantee whatsoever that any of these things are going to happen, okay? That's not Christian hope. The Christian hope that you and I have is an inheritance that is being guarded and protected by God in heaven for us right now, Peter tells us. It's a sure thing. So we can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in the hope that we already have that is done. And it's funny, funny ironic that the word rejoice is most often used in the New Testament more than 50% of the time within the context of trials, tribulation, and trouble. You would think it would be used in times of celebration and good situations, but it's not. Just read the book of Philippians uh, Paul's book to the church at Philippi, he uses the word translated joy or rejoice 17 times, but it's all within the context pretty much of the church being persecuted. 
So it just makes sense that the next thing Paul says is to be patient in tribulation. How many of us, it is our natural flinch that when life gets hard, we just automatically lean into patience? It's not my natural flinch. My natural flinch is to whine, complain, and find Jackie and make her life miserable. That is my natural flinch when it gets tough. But in Christ, Paul says that we are to bear up under the load, that we are to endure because it's not us doing it, it's the power of Christ in us. The word is hupomeno, patient. And, and that Greek uh, uh, prefix, hupo, anytime you see that, it means under. And so literally the word patience in Greek Hupomeno means to bear up under tonnage. You, you hear somebody with tremendous financial problems, and one of the metaphors they'll use often is, I just need to get out from under. It's because they feel that weight pressing them down. Paul says that in Christ, we can bear up under the weight of tribulation, of trials, and of trouble. And finally, we need to be constant in prayer. And that's a curious interpretation of the word constant there because it's, it's the word proskeratontis, which everywhere else in the New Testament is translated as persevere. But constant is perseverance. Const, it, perseverance means to be constant, to be consistent, to endure, to remain the same. And so we need to be constant in prayer, durable in prayer. I am really fired up about this. And here's why. I, I came out of several different environments in my in my Christian life where and this can happen by the power of, uh, of the gospel it's possible that it can happen but I've just experienced it differently but this was the expectation in the environments that I came out of that you would present the gospel in 30 seconds and people would just believe and that's it well I've seen that happen but more often for me what I have found is that it sometimes takes years and years and years this guy I hiked with on Friday mornings, it took a long time. God slowly revealed it to him, and then one day God decided to send the Holy Spirit into his heart, regenerate him, and save him. And that's when it happened, but it took a long time. I look at the path of my own life. I came to know Christ when I was 27 years old, and as I look back, I realize that the Spirit was already starting to work on me 12 years earlier. And then finally, after 12 years, the Spirit just said, now. And I said, okay, I get it. You know what? I'm lost and separated. I really want Jesus. And my life has been completely different since. So it takes patience and perseverance. The Christian thing is not a product. It is a life. It is not a result. It is a journey. It is not an end game. It's a now game. And proclamation is essential to that. It's essential for, for, for the gospel. It's essential for discipleship. It's a, essential for endurance and i'll reiterate churches with a vision and purpose proclaim the gospel and teach the word of god churches with a vision and purpose acknowledge and proclaim the power of the gospel and churches with a vision and purpose embrace the word of god as authority for all of life and for wisdom and that's what arcadia redemption is going to be let me pray the two of the shans will come up and help lead us into our time of reflection and, and communion god Thank you for your word and its truth, and thank you that we have the privilege to proclaim it every single week. God, help us to be people of the world, word. Help us to be people who understand and proclaim your gospel. Help us to be people who love our community and are going to engage our community and help them to know Christ, whom we have already known. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.